I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president in 2020. And this is the Green Socialist Podcast, where we talk about continuing to advance the program we advanced during that campaign. And I'm sorry I missed y'all last week. I got an infection that just knocked me out. And I was flat on my back. But uh, my strength is coming back, which brings up insanity that I see going on right now with this COVID vaccination denial. You got people mostly on the far right, but actually some Greens and others saying that we face, uh, you know, some kind of corporate conspiracy or even the second coming in Nazi Germany because people, their their proposals and, and uh, actual enactment of vaccine mandates. You know, kids got to get vaccinated to go to public school. You want to leave the country, you got to, it won't let you in unless you got certain vaccinations. But all of a sudden, people have lost their damn minds. And they think that the threat to our freedom is coming from uh, the vaccine mandates. These are public health measures. I mean, you're going to start driving on the left side of the road because you, that's, you know, uh, impeding your freedom because we're supposed to drive on the right side. I mean, let's get a grip here. Let's get some common sense. The real threat to our freedoms is coming from these right-wingers that are pushing this nonsense. Look at these police unions. New York City's lost 60 cops to COVID. 600 cops have died from COVID since the pandemic started compared to 35 to gunfire. Yet uh, the head of the police union in New York saying he's going to sue if they mandate a vaccine uh, for the officers. Less than half of them are vaccinated. And then you got this nutcase in Chicago, Cataranza, who's comparing vaccinations to uh, Nazi Germany. And he has a quote. I don't have the quote in front of me, but you can look it up. The Atlantic had an article in Chicago Sun-Times. That's where the quote is. And he says, and he's talking about the cops. Now, this is America. We should be able to do whatever we damn well please. And what he means is the cops, not us. They can order us around even if they're carrying the COVID uh, virus, and we got to comply. But if we ask them to get vaccinated so they don't make us sick, they say, hell no. That's fascism. That's where our threat from our freedom is coming, not vaccine mandates. Vaccine mandates are going to save lives. And now kids going back to school, you got these nut governors, Florida, DeSantis, Texas, Abbott, and they're putting children's lives at risk. So. You know, I was glad I was getting antibiotics and, and get this infection corrected. These people that say, you know, this is all a big corporate conspiracy. I think they've lost their mind. We got to use some common sense here. So that's my first comment. Uh, I want to express solidarity with people marching in Washington, D.C. today, Atlanta, Phoenix, and many other cities for voting rights. And we know what needs to be done. The Senate has got to at least lift the filibuster so we can get the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed. And they're late. The uh, partisan gerrymandering by the Republicans is now going on. And they are basically entrenching themselves in Congress, the House, and in their state legislatures. And even if the For the People Act, which would bar partisan gerrymandering, which the Supreme Court said is okay, it's going to be too late. So they're already too late. But they're still 
things that can be done if that law passes. Now, of course, the Greens were concerned about the public financing provision. We'll see if that's in the final version, but measures to ensure that people have easy access to the ballot and particularly to stop this move by Republican legislatures to take control of determining who the winners of elections are. They're taking it away from independently elected secretaries of state, uh, boards of election. The Georgia, Georgia Republicans are already going after the Fulton County Board, mostly black Democrats. It's the biggest black vote in the state. And they're trying to pack that so they can flip elections. This is real serious stuff. And it's disgusting that the Democrats can't twist the arms of Manchin and Cinema and any other senators that are holding this back. And where the hell is Biden on this? I know he's got a full plate, but this is crucial. Everything else depends on that uh, in terms of, you know, basic reforms that the Democrats ran on that we support, like the Equality Act, uh, the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, DACA. I mean, there's so many, you know, common sense reforms, the PRO Act, and they'd get none of them passed, D.C. statehood, unless they get uh, these voting rights uh, secured and uh, also get the filibuster out of the way. So, you know, that's my second thought. Solidarity of the people out there marching. Uh, if you're not here, I hope that's where you are. And uh, that's really important. Now, Afghanistan, you know, I, I actually retweeted an AOC uh, statement that I agree with that uh, it's important that this mission to bring back the Americans and those who worked with us is important. That's what the military does. It brings its people back. We got to distinguish between the policymakers that got us into this immoral war and what the, you know, what the service members are asked to do. And in this case, I think it's a righteous mission. They brought over 120,000 people back. And my condolences go to the service members who died in that terrorist attack. Um, but going forward, you know, military interve intervention is counterproductive. I mean, the data is real clear. The more we bomb these countries, drones strike them, the more terrorists we create. Uh, but what we can do is diplomacy and humanitarian aid. And, you know, the Taliban is a reactionary force, but, you know, they're going to need, you know, technocrats to administer agencies. They're going to need money to get basic services out. And that's where uh, we can have some influence. Uh, in the course of this war, it's been total corruption. I mean, we have five basic big military contractors that took the money and ran total corruption, and then partnered with this government we were supposedly setting up, which is really uh, a narco state. And uh, they took the money and ran, you know, the last guy Ghani's in Doha with all his money. So the people of Afghanistan were as disgusted with the government as they were with the Taliban. So they're in a hard place. But what good was done when people talk about freedom for women and going to school, that was mostly done by private charities. So I think going forward, we owe Afghanistan reparations. This goes back not just 20 years. It goes back to when uh, Carter uh, started supporting these Islamist fundamentalists against uh, a communist government that took power in a coup, probably was ahead of the people, 
But that was before the Russians even went in. But then we doubled down on the Reagan and started this war. It's been going on for 40 years. And really, this is blowback for an imperialist policy that the U.S. and Britain and Israel have applied in the Middle East, uh, which is to undermine secular nationalist and socialist movements by supporting Islamists. And they succeeded. And now the Islamists are coming back to bite us. And that's where you get these death cults like ISIS uh, that, uh, you know, really are a danger to our people around the world and maybe here. So that's a consequence of what we've been doing going forward. No military intervention. Let's let's do it with diplomacy and humanitarian aid uh, where we can. And uh, that's that would be the lesson learned from this Afghanistan fiasco. And the irony is, I mean, the Washington Post published that Afghanistan papers uh, earlier. Was it earlier this year? Yeah. And it's like the Pentagon Papers. The military brass, the intelligence agencies knew we were not setting up a government. It was a disaster. But, you know, their thing is to get the money and do what they do. And they kept doing it. And that is just a, a shame. And I would add here that Daniel Hale, who just got sentenced to four years for blowing the whistle, on the indiscriminate killing of civilians with that Afghanistan drone strikes, he should be pardoned. He blew the whistle. He should not be in prison under this Espionage Act. So that's another point. And now we're headed into the fall and $3.5 billion reconciliation package is about half of what you know Bernie Sanders and the progressives hoped for. There were some saying 10 billion or trillion over 10 years, but uh, that still has to be bargained out. They've got the framework in the budget blueprint, but we don't know the details. And I am really concerned that they will get some of these uh, social infrastructure, human care, you know, community college, paid leave, child care, pre-K. That's those are all good programs that should be supported. But we're in a climate emergency, and when it was the uh, American Jobs Plan, 2.3 trillion just for the physical infrastructure, is only about 100 billion a year for uh, climate action, and the policy was wrong, like swapping out uh, electric vehicles for internal combustion vehicles, but keeping personal vehicle and freight trucking as the main transportation mode. That's an environmental catastrophe right there. So we're going to see what's in that climate package in the fall, but. And, and they're talking about you guys, a lot of senators and uh, Democrats, not just Republicans, and also in the House, who want to cut that back. So we don't have an answer to the climate emergency. And now we have, you know, since Thursday night, another emergency, and that's the evictions. The Supreme Court uh, said the CDC could not, uh, didn't have the authority to impose this uh, eviction moratorium. And the, and the tragedy here, and, I, you know, I've been calling the bipartisan U.S. state a failed state. There's $46.5 billion in rent relief been appropriated from the two COVID relief packages. Only 11% of that has got out to relieve renters and their landlords. And there are now about 6.4 million renters. About 15% of all renters are behind. And their total debt, though, is only about $21.3 billion. These are July figures, but it's the most recent I could find. And we got 46 and a half billion appropriated. So the money is there. It's sitting in states and cities and not being uh, put out. 
And this is just utter failure. And, you know, actually, Texas, crazy Republican state, is doing much better than Democratic New York in getting these funds released. So what we need to do now is push for uh, congressional and state eviction moratoriums and get our state and local governments to get that damn money out. Or otherwise, you're going to have, you know, families put out on the street in the middle of a pandemic. And let's not kid ourselves. This Delta virus, it's, you know, in some of these states, they're like over double their uh, capacity for their, uh, what do they call them, intensive care units. I mean, that's another crisis. So, damn, we need a Green Party. So those are my comments. And uh, what I'd like to do today is bring in my campaign manager, Andrea Merida, and uh, my digital guy, uh, Chris Blankenhorn, to uh, carry on the conversation today since I'm recovering from this infection and uh, need some help. So how are you guys doing? Good. I'm doing great. I'm, I'm ecstatic that you're back in the saddle, Howie, because, you know, we uh, we need to keep you around and we need to keep that brain flowing. So um, I'm glad you're back. And I, it looks like folks in the uh, that are watching live, too, also are really excited that you're back as well. Somebody's got to read and give feedback on a, on this infrastructure bill. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to read it. I got to rely on Howie. <laughs> I know this is like his bedtime reading. Not even. I mean, when we used to do the live streams, you remember we we would do it in in Howie's uh, office, his library. Well, his whole damn house is a library. So, <laughs> but yeah, Howie. You know, I just want to go back to that um, anti. Uh, you know, the vaccination. Uh, you know, controversy, and it really shouldn't be a controversy. And you're so on point about, you know, the necessity of it. You know, we we were reading today, and I want to share this article in the chat with folks, this article about um, the connection, and Cornell put this out, Cornell University put this out, the connection of sort of like white supremacist, racist attitudes among people that have this sort of anti-vax um feeling you know um it's it's and it's kind of confusing and it's it's a little frustrating because you know you feel like you want to give people logical information and you know you could talk about data and this and that and the other and they always come back with this you know what it comes down to with a lot of these folks is that they just want to be able to make their own decision it's this autonomy thing that these people have right and and the problem is is that when you have working class people of color, for example, who also have these same attitudes, it makes it a little confusing. So what do you think, Howie? Well, it's a long history. I mean, we learned how to inoculate against smallpox from an enslaved African that Cotton Mather owned. And they knew what we didn't know, we being Europeans. The Chinese knew it. And because of the source, there's always been this racist attitude that this is some kind of savage ritual, <laughs> even though it works. You know, people are worried about vaccine mandates. George Washington required the Continental Army to get vaccinated, to be in the Army. And, you know, disease killed more people 
aside from smallpox and other diseases, than actual combat. So that was really important. And, you know, these right-wingers talking about, you know, constitutional rights and all this, they don't even know their history. And it, it comes down to a deep-seated racism that uh, they just can't accept. They got something from a source that, you know, wasn't their ancestor. So uh, I see somebody asked, what about medical apartheid, Harriet Washington? She's quoted in that article. Check out the article. Um, she's a very good uh, African-American. I don't know if she's a MD, but she's a PhD. And I actually just cited her in another article about how lead poisoning can account for the differences in IQ between whites and blacks. She debunks the idea that it's inherited and genetic, uh, but then looks at how lead poisoning, which the Surgeon General in 1971 said was an emergency, we need to act on, and we still have not. So in my neighborhood here, it's like 40% of the kids are lead poisoned, basically from dust, from lead paint, uh, some of the residue from ga uh, leaded gas in the dirt and and uh, lead uh, service lines from the main line into houses. But it's the dust from that lead point paint that it can be remediated and has not. And this is true all over the country. And, the, you know, this is concentrated in black communities and communities of color, low income communities. And this is a prime example of environmental racism. And we still do not have a federal program to deal with that. That should be part of this infrastructure bill. Mm -hmm. There may be some money for lead poison. I can't remember exactly, but uh, it's, re it's, re it's, it's an easy job to remediate the lead poisoning. You just got to scrape it, get rid of the lead paint, repaint the surfaces. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a crime that it hasn't been done yet. So anyway, yeah, it's Harry Washington, medical apartheid. And this other book is called The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Waste, I think. Chris, what you got, man? Yeah, well, I was, you know, as a former painter, you know, I, I'll say my my boss that I painted for, if we we stopped doing outside, re, like outside repaints on old houses because we passed all these laws about um, lead paint. Like if there was lead paint, we had to tent the entire house, basically, so that none of them, none of it could escape and all of that. Um, and it just made it so that we couldn't do the work anymore. So, you know, Howie's right. There, there needs to be funding on this. Um, you know, when, when Howie was talking about voting rights and, you know, reeling in cinema and mansion, um, and it, it applies to all the other bills that are being held up unless the filibuster has gone. Um, you know, I mean, I see, I see mansion and cinema playing an intentional role. Um, they're covering for another 10, 10 conservative Democrats that don't want to vote for this stuff. They're just cinema in particular really seems to revel in the attention for it. Um, but you know, so I, I think they're playing that role. Um, they're, they're, they're be, you know, I, Dick Durbin's my Senator. And when they didn't pass, uh, one of my senators and when they didn't pass the minimum wage stuff, I asked Democrats, I said, so is Dick Durbin losing his job as whip? And they had to admit he didn't do a job, a bad job as whip. He did what he was supposed to do, not let $15 minute, minimum wage pass. The party didn't want it. Um, and so they found these, you know, happy scapegoats who like, you know, who like the power and attention and 
Um, but I, I think that they are intentionally doing what they're doing. And I think it's on behalf of, you know, the, the, the backroom power players of the Democratic Party, the conservative um, institutional part of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. I see uh, Vicki Corden asked, what about Flint, Michigan and lead poisoning? And I just finished an article on environmental racism and environmental justice for the Journal of Modern Slavery. And, you know, what I found, and this is what the Black-led environmental justice movement found a long time ago. The reason Black communities and other communities of color get polluted is they don't have power. And the white power structure imposes toxic waste dumps, gas pipelines, uh, not uh, providing basic municipal services like sanitation and clean water on communities of color because they don't have power. And what happened in Flint was the state took over Flint because the city was in a fiscal crisis, largely created by the state itself because they didn't provide the revenue sharing they promised and cut back on, on programs that they were funding. And then the uh, emergency manager decided that they're going to stop taking water from Lake Huron and pipe it in from the Flint River, which was polluted as hell. And that's how I think it was like something like 40 percent of the children of Flint at the peak of the crisis were lead poisoned. And that was a certain threshold. I forget what it was the EPA had. The truth is any lead in your blood is bad. There is no safe limit. Now, Reuters went out and did a survey. That's how I know 40% of the kids in my neighborhood are lead poisoned. And they used data that uh, the states and health departments, county health departments have been providing. And they found over 3,000 neighborhoods in the United States had higher child lead poisoning than Flint did at the peak. So what happened in Flint was a majority black city got disempowered and got polluted by the white power structure. But that's only the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in this country in terms of environmental racism. So Flint has had some remediation, but I know people in Flint, they still won't drink the water because they don't trust the authorities, understandably. Yep. So we've got this nice little comment here that I think that we probably should address just for the edification of all of us. Ryan says that socialism is never democratic. And I just, you know, the actual definition of socialism is the democratic control of the means of production, exchange and distribution by the working class. You know, this is why uh, neoliberals and other capitalists in this country fight so hard against unions, for example, because they are one of the examples of what we contemplate when we you know, fully implement socialism. Um, and I think that people that say things like this, and then later on, Ryan goes on to say that socialism is authoritarian. You know, um, you know, socialism, basically, once uh, workers arrive at, uh, at a democratic decision, then that, that goes, right? And I think that there's a lot of people here in the United States that confuse individualism and their right to dissent and th- those kinds of things um, with, what is necessary for uh, you know a, a society that is just, right? What would you say about this comment? And then I'll just put up this other one. 
Either one. You know, that, that's an old trope. Capitalism is authoritarian as hell. Hello. When you go to work, the boss tells you what to do. You have no say. And he steals half of what you produce. He takes the surplus value. In socialism, you have a say on how the production is done, what gets produced, and you get the full fruit of your labor. That's just by definition. So this old trope about socialism being authoritarian, you know, unfortunately, it got some credibility because you had these state bureaucratic capitalist societies like Stalin's Russia, where there was a bureaucratic class that took the surplus value and the people didn't have freedom. But that's not the kind of socialism that the socialist movement developed in the 19th century was talking about. As Marx said in the Communist Manifesto, we have to win the battle for democracy, by which he meant the vast majority, the working class, would you know, take democratic control of society and have a society where they had to say what goes on at work, what goes on in social and political life, and they got the full fruit of what they produced instead of having a ruling class appropriate like slave masters did like landlords did under serfdom as they do under all class societies so yeah that's just an old trope that doesn't make any sense when you break it down chris oh i i cat paratus just said in communism you have this relationship between worker and employer in communism the worker is the employer the relationship ends they become you empower the worker um you know and I, I, yesterday was my last day working for someone. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to be a stay-at-home dad. So, you know, there was nothing democratic. Even working for the idolized small business, um, there was nothing democratic about my workplace. Um, you know, I I may have had a, a set, some some input. Um, I may have had some influence, but at the end of the day, I mean, there are many times it was like, well, I'm the owner, and this is how it's you know going to go. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that the workers become the owners. The workers get to make those decisions. And, um, you know, yeah, the original comments, I mean, someone's someone's found a boogeyman that they're, you know, I, I see comments like that. And my, my honest response is, well, someone doesn't understand the words and the things they're talking about. They're just parroting. But um, we do have to make a distinction between oppressive states that call themselves communists and what communism or socialism is as a definition and an ideal. Yeah, and I also think since authoritarianism, authoritarianism is the boogeyman, we need to start talking about a about capitalism, right? Like we live in an authoritarian society, like in the United States, and it's actually one of the things that intrigues me about our kind of neo-fascist far right wing is that they are a uh, there it's like an individualistic fascism which is abnormal <laughs> you know it's a white supremacist you know they they want everyone to be like them but they still want to be able to be different mm. um, yeah i mean as a as a grandparent right and i'm i'm really as you as the two of you know really starting to get involved in the you know raising of my grandchildren i mean i can't think of anything more authoritarian than to uh cause uh, families to have to make these choices between poverty 
and direct directly raising their children according to their values and with love and with care and consideration and then having to hand them over to a school system and especially if you're a child of color right a school system that may or may not have this jail to school school to jailhouse track uh thing very fixed right so you can't even make the 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 autonomous decision as a parent to raise your child yourself you have to hand them over to the state to the school which may or may not be good because capitalism needs you to create more profit and they can rob more of the value of, of what you earn i mean i can't think of anything more authoritarian than that honestly well i'm there's a lot more things but that's just one example so you know this this idea that you know socialism is authoritarian really what it comes down to is that you don't res respect democracy you're not willing to live by decisions that the collective makes you just want to have your own way so you know anyways so it, it creates unemployment too eric gray this is a good question Thoughts on the debate of reform versus revolution? Well, we, we set up a revolutionary situation by fighting for reforms. Now, the debate is whether you can gradually uh, transition from capitalism to socialism by passing a series of reforms through the existing state. And the reformists say yes, and the revolutionaries say no. And I think if you look at history, you have to say the revolutionaries are right. Um, because as long as the capitalists still have concentrated ownership of major means of production, they have real power in the economy. They can stop financing the state and put it in fiscal crisis. They can stop investing in the economy to punish the reformers. And so then the reformers either have to adapt or push forward, which means expropriating those big capitalists and socializing those enterprises. And when we look at what happened, say, to Salvador Allende in Chile, who tried to do it uh, by reform, and uh, you know what the U.S. said, uh, Kissinger said, we can't let them go communist because of their own stupidity, and you know, got the CIA involved with the right wing of the uh, Chilean military, and that was Pinochet. And, you know, they went in, they killed Allende and a few thousand others and imprisoned tens of thousands of others and basically created a, a fascist dictatorship for the next 30, 40 years, or what, 95, maybe 25 years. Um, that's what happens. Uh, look at uh, France. When Mitterrand first got in, the French Socialist Party had a very progressive socialist reform program and capital went on strike and Mitterrand adapted by abandoning the program. So that's the problem with the reformist approach. On the other hand, you just can't stand out there and say, let's storm the barricades and take over. You've got to get the people with you. And the way people get involved is by fighting for reforms that make sense, like single payer health care like common sense climate action, like let's cut the military budget and put money into our needs and make friends around the world with humanitarian aid instead of enemies with, with wars. And uh, when they find out that the power structure doesn't really want to do that, that's a radicalizing experience. And then 
the way I think it, it, it could happen in this country, because we're an electoral democracy, despite all its flaws, we're going to elect a reform government. And then when the power structure blocks it, the question is, will the people come out and support that government? You know, that's Bernie Sanders kind of got it right. He said, we need a political revolution. People need to be mobilized. And at that point, it's a real fight. And you either leap forward or you get pushed back. That's a revolutionary situation. And the other thing the revolutionaries say is that we can't take over the capitalist state as it's structured. This capitalist state is counter-majoritarian in the Senate, the Electoral College, in the winner-take-all single-member district system, which makes it very hard for uh, the majority of the people to get their public opinions translated into public policy because these counter-majoritarian institutions entrench the elite tied to the rich power structure. So we've got to change the structure of government, people's assemblies, delegates accountable to people's assemblies at the base, proportional representation in legislative bodies, abolish the Senate and the Electoral College, which are counter-majoritarian, reform the Supreme Court, so you don't have lifetime appointments and it, it gets packed like the Republicans did in the last decade. So that means term limits, regular rotation, and uh, maybe some other reforms, limiting the authority of the Supreme Court. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court can review all laws that Congress passes. And there are, there are clauses in the Constitution which says Congress can say what the Supreme Court can and cannot review. So there's a lot of work to be done there. And while we on the left have been focused on economic justice and peace because of and ecology, because those have been such crucial issues and social equality, I think we need to pay more attention to our governing institutions, particularly now. I mean, the thing that I came out of this last campaign with was we were we were in a bad place because you know Trump had to go in the minds of most center to progressive people. Understandably, the guy was nuts, a danger, not mentally stable, a racist, etc. Uh, but because we could not get a voice in the election because people were saying, shut up, Greens, get out of the way. We got to get rid of Trump. Major issues were not discussed, like the nuclear arms race, like a real climate plan, like Medicare for all. Biden was running from the Green New Deal and Medicare for all Hardest Trump was trying to pin that label on him. We were for it, and the public opinion polls show that people were with us. So what we've really got to do is get out of this winner-take-all, single-member district situation. So when it comes to the presidential election, I think a major demand between now and 2024 is a ranked-choice national popular vote for president. You don't have to amend the Constitution to do that. There are clauses in the Constitution that say Congress can regulate the presidential election. So you can basically render the uh, electoral college captured by the popular vote. And there's an article coming out in the Harvard Law and Policy Review by Rob Ritchie and others that uh, I can't wait for it to get out because it has a draft of that legislation. That's something we can rally around and try to make an issue of. But that's hard to do at the presidential level. That's why I've been pushing people to get involved in these state and local campaigns for ranked choice voting, particularly multi-seat ranked choice voting 
for legislative bodies, because that's where we get proportional representation. If we have proportional representation, the Greens in this country would be as influential as they are, say, in Scotland, where they just took joint ownership of the uh, provincial government, or Iceland, where a left Green is the prime minister, or most European countries where the Greens are in the cabinet and uh, certainly in the legislature and a big part of the discussion. In this country, our capitalist state institutions marginalize us systematically. And that's a major demand, a major fight we've got to take up. Chris? Yeah. Um, I mean, like Holly said, with the reformer revolution question, both, both, um, you know, we have to build. I don't care what kind of revolution you're talking about in this country and where, where do you see the left being anywhere ready for it? Any kind, not just talking violent revolutions, but even electoral reform, you know, transitions and things like that, that are the crux of this question. You know, the, we're just not in a position for it. You know, I, years ago, I was having a debate with a, um, someone who liked to proudly declare themselves to be a revolutionary socialist. And they're criticizing my advocating for uh, Medicare for all. And basically when I pushed them on it, they said people will have medical, will have universal healthcare after the revolution. That was their position. And I'm like, then we're all gonna be dead, <laughs> right? Like I'm either gonna die in the revolution and I'm an organizer, so I'll probably be targeted pretty on, early on, um, or I'll die of lack of health care, right? And this person had employer-provided health care, right? Um, so to me, when I, you know, we're not ready. We have to build a real, you know, working class mass movement but before we're ready for any kind of revolution. And that means that we have to, you know, we're, we're the street, we're political street medics right now. We've got to solve problems and, and heal people how we can to get us to the point that we're in, a, we're in fighting shape for a revolution, no matter what that, what that is. You know, right now the working class is, you know, overworked, exhausted, no healthcare, no, you know, stability. They've, they're facing eviction we are not ready for anything. And I think when we, you know, even if we're talking about, you know, a velvet revolution that, you know, kind of does happen through like how we said, a, a progressive government gets, gets elected, that government tries to make a, you know, more than modest reform and it is stopped by, you know, capital, the, you know, the capitalist institutions, how he talked about how in his uh, really great article on, um, Sanders socialism is just New Deal liberalism um, talked about how Clinton found out that Wall Street has veto power. Right. So if we're going to get to that point to have that velvet revolution where the, you know, the powers that be, the economic powers, the political powers say no to a rightly elected reform from a government, then we have to get to the point where we can stand up as in mass, as you know, I've seen people talking about general strikes and stuff like we can't even support local strikes. We can't even not buy Amazon. Right. And this is the left, too. So we really, you know, we're not at a point where revolution in really any sense is 
something that's a serious short-term project. We need to be really focusing on building and winning some reforms on the way there so that our people are have a little relief um have you know aren't, or maybe get to have the time to engage in in serious political action because they they got a little bit of space to breathe in their their home and economic lives so you know it's got to be both um we've got to be we, we've got to build up to that and when we get to that point we also have to remember like we have to be ready on all fronts for any kind of revolution because we have an extraordinarily overarmed right wing, mm -hmm. right? If if this comes to the the Bolshevikian revolution or you know we're gonna we're all Maoists now and we're gonna go charge through the country like Mao, it's gonna be a bloodbath for everyone but the extreme far right because that's what the that's where the current landscape is so we have to build against that too right we've got to be ready when they come out to stand up and you know that usually comes down to the cops and the military and bad news on where they tend to fall too so yeah you well, know i absolutely agree with you on it has to be both reform and revolution right and part of the problem in this whole discussion on the left is that um the the Democratic Party has sort of adulterated this idea of what a reform is, right? You know, we we since you know the the 90s at least, and Howie I'm sure has other historical references. We hear things like social security or pension reform, welfare reform, education reform, which is a particularly pernicious thing for me, right? Um, and and typically these the, the word reform comes associated with a lot of neoliberal like austerity kind of like plans that end up uh, hurting the working class right and so I understand the trepidation that we have today with the word reform however I do need to point out that when the census came out um, this year uh, recently one data point that really really stuck out to me was the fact that it was like something like almost ninety percent of all of the population of the United States lives in urban centers as of right now. So what does that mean? We can fixate on national politics and, and you know, we need to, right? Because we, we don't have a, a, an anti-war movement. We don't have a, a really a, an anti-nuclear movement. We don't, you know, the, uh, the environmental movement is always kind of on shaky footing. So there's these big national problems that we need to be paying attention to. However, your life is directly impacted the most by local government, right? And when 85% of all Americans are living in urban centers, revolutionaries need to fight at the ballot box as well. You know, there are things like this issue with Flint, Michigan and the lead in their water. I mean, there are, you know, there's a local government there that could be taking this by the uh, this bull by the horns and you know unfortunately with the state level politics in michigan michigan just comes in and overrides local government but also that's something that you could push against as well so you know i actually i understand leftists who say well we just need to have a revolution but your point about you know there are all these lives that are left in the wake i mean i don't believe in accelerationism either right because there's actual human beings that get hurt by that level of neglect. So, you know, we absolutely need to be able to bring all these people along. And as you say, overworked and, you know, underpaid. And I mean, they're producing like, like 
no other time in history. They have to be ready. And where are socialists going to learn how to organize in communities? Um, if you're not doing labor organizing, by God, get involved with political organizing for the for, for the ballot box. There are, you know, uh, the Green Party is, is the right place to, to do it, in my opinion. If you're a person that can't handle these, you know, the two most enthusiastic capitalist parties in the world. I, we can talk all day long about the weirdness of the Green Party. I don't disagree. But somewhere we have to learn how to make change in our communities. And in that local, you know, your, your Green Party local is a good place to start because you got to get used to thinking about other people. When you talk about, well, we just need to have you know, a communist revolution and we're not thinking about what that actually means to elderly people or to children or whatever, right? Um, then you're practicing a form of isolationism. And it looks a lot, I got to say, it looks a lot like the same isolationism that we see over on the right. So don't duplicate that. We have to go together. So um, I want to get back to the danger of the armed right. Mm -hmm. And my position is we're not going to defeat them in a gunfight. What we got to do, and we got to distinguish between the cops and rank and file military. We need to have relationships with rank and file military. Many of these people go there for naive reasons of serving country, for economic opportunity, being part of something bigger than themselves, best opportunity before them. They are not there to go out, you know, and kill people. That's what they do in basic training, try to, you know, break down your inhibitions. Uh, but they don't completely. And we saw that during Vietnam, the peace movement, the coffee houses, the GI coffee houses and other propaganda uh, won over a lot of the rank and file of the army in particular. Nixon had the Vietnamese rather than keep Vietnam, Vietnamization, pay the you know, Vietnam, South Vietnam army because our soldiers wouldn't fight. He figured that out by 69. So that is a case where uh, the soldiers, in some cases, turned their, their, they called it fragging, you know. If officers insisted on going out and doing a patrol, those second lieutenants didn't make it back. Uh, that's how serious it was. So a revolutionary situation, we've got to have the rank and file, the majority rank and file, and also up the officer corps saying, you know, we're sticking with the Constitution. We're not aligning with these right-wing militias. And the cops who have become a lot like that in most cases, although I would say in every police department, you're going to find progressives and should, you should build those relationships, at least for intelligence, so you know when they're coming after you. Um, and the other thing we got to recognize is that these militias are illegal in every state. You cannot have private militias. That law is not enforced. Even liberal Democratic attorney generals are looking the other way. A well-regulated militia means it's attached to the state. It's not these guys that go out on weekends to play their little war games and get ready to, you know, do their stupid things like they did at the Michigan State House or the Oregon State House or the U.S. Capitol. So there are laws to be enforced there. We should be insisting on that. But for the movement, our main action should be nonviolent. It should be uh, commit, you know, solidarizing with the rank and file of the military. Those cops we can find because if it does come to shooting, we want the guns on our side. 
I was in the Marine Corps. I don't care how good a left-wing militia you got. You're not going to beat the Marines in the infantry. You know, they're going to kick your ass. So let's not have fantasies about what we cannot do. We got to have a realistic political strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not there yet. Yeah. That situation comes when we've, you know, the Greens are starting to make inroads in government and starting to push reforms and the establishment says enough. And then we also got to recognize the right wing. There are, you know, Trump is not just uh, the phenomenon of, you know, this racist Yahoo sentiment that's been around a long time. There are, you know, very rich multimillionaires, hundred millionaires and billionaires backing the far right, including the vaccine denial, the racist stuff and the, you know, deregulate the whole administrative state. Mm -hmm. uh, so while the Democrats got their sort of more liberal capitalists, the right wing has theirs. They're rich. And that's another thing we got to factor in. Chris, it sounds like you're trying to get in here. Yeah, real quick, too, just to kind of, you know, the, the reformer, I'm someone with a degree in political philosophy, but it's an academic discussion, um, you know, and so I want to try to bring it back to organizing. And, um, you know, I used to work as a field director for a community org. We knocked probably about half the doors in my town over the course of a few months. And when you're knocking doors, when you're doing deep canvassing, when you're having conversations with people in your community about the problems that they're facing, they bring up reforms. The things they want are often small. Um, my roads suck, right? And now our job as a socialist organizer is to help work them and grow them and develop them to the point that they see that these things are connected to capitalism. Right. Um, my, my big line here locally when someone complains about our roads is public works and the police ask for the same amount of money in our town. The cops got 98 percent of their budget request and public works got 30 percent. Uh, my my le city's leadership is actively choosing to overfund the police mm -hmm. and underfund public works and city projects that would provide jobs that would you know provide better infrastructure, things like that. Um, so, I mean, I, I think these conversations are good, but we really need to be talking about what the people in our communities need. Um, we need to be listening to them and hearing what they have to say and then helping make those bigger connections to build the kind of mass movement that we can even begin talking about revolution. Um, so, you know, reform or revolution for me is, you know, a fun academic discussion, mm -hmm. but how do we get there is through hitting the streets, knocking on doors, talking to people, and doing it. Right. I want to put this question up about, because uh, it's come up a couple or, or more times in the chat. How do you explain to those uh, at war with dust is asking, how do you explain to those who trust, distrust big pharma to trust the vaccines? Look at the scientific data that's being released by the CDC and the medical community, the scientific community. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people, I don't trust big pharma. No one should. Our, the U.S. medical system does not have your health in its, in, is its primary interest. It is not there for that. Um, it's there for profits. And so we shouldn't trust big pharma. Um, you know, and, they're all, and it's, it's, this is the nuance that got Jill Stein in trouble. 
in 2016, right? The the idea that we do need to address these problems, that the you know ex CEOs of Pfizer and all these companies are who's who's on the FDA, mm-hmm. um, just like the FCC and Comcast and AT and T, right? We have reasons not to um, not to trust these these or these companies, um, and it, solutions wise, how is you know National Health Service is central to that. We we bring them under public control so that so that it is now public health and the health of their patients is the number one thing that they focus on, you know, but how, how to get through to some of these people at this point, I'm at, I'm at a point where it's, this is the largest sample size that has ever existed for any kind of medicine or drug, right? I don't know, hundreds of millions, if not more than a billion people have taken these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, you're one, if you don't get it, you're the control. You're the part of the experiment that says, what if we do nothing? Um, and what if we do, you know, and even when we've done something, we've lost six, 600,000 people, mm-hmm. right? So doing nothing is even, you know, losing right. more. Right. So for me, that's the big thing. Like, and the problem is these aren't rational discussions most of the time. Right. Um, my wife's best friend partner just lost her mother-in-law yesterday. Uh, tested positive like two days before they they passed away. Anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, probably didn't believe it until the end. Um, you know, and so it's really, really hard to get through when you're not acting with, when you're not having a discussion with someone who wants, who's interested in a rational discussion. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that's where, it's like I, I don't think most people want things like vaccine mandates and passports and that kind of stuff. But when people won't act in, you know, on the, it's the Republican, you know, right wingers that are Republicans who aren't practicing the personal responsibility they preach. Right. So these kind of things that are often deemed authoritarian and decronian are, are forced on us by the people who, you know, claim to want the opposite and. I don't know. It's really hard. How to get through to someone who doesn't want to hear is it takes personal experience and you're never going to get through to somebody yelling at them on the, yelling at them on the internet. Yeah. Um, That's not how people change their minds. Someone close to them has to get through or something horrible, unfortunately has to happen to someone close to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality of the situation is that we know big pharma is a problem, you know, really, there is no ethical vaccination under capitalism. If I were to, you know, paraphrase, you know, that but the, we know that there's problems with big pharma. We know that there, as you pointed out, the FDA folks that are on, um, you know, the former uh, big pharma people who are on FDA. We have the Green Party has called for a long time for, you know, basically kind of sanitizing the FDA, you know, from its uh, corporate, uh, uh, you know, uh, ties. Right. And this was a big problem with the Obama administration. If not, and he wasn't the only one putting all of these corporate executives from different industries on FDA, on the FCC, all, all these kinds of things. So we know that exists. The, the problem is, is that we don't have a people's medical, you know, core who can produce the vaccines. Well, there is one and it's happening, you know, a hundred miles off of Florida, but you know, if it weren't for embargoes, you know, um, and, and, and this comes down to the commodification of human rights. You know, everybody has the right to, to have medical care. 
Now, I do want to very briefly talk about, you know, and address this issue again of people of color who are working class um, who have these misgivings, right? We know that the medical establishment historically has experimented and taken liberties with bodies that have that are living under colonization. We know that, you know, um, even recently, and we had a live stream about this a few months ago, you know, we, we talked about the history of, of forced sterilizations in, in, on women in Puerto Rico. We know that there were undocumented women in uh, waiting for asylum and in the in the yeleras, you know, in, in the detention facilities now. I mean, they're, they're having hysterectomies without consent. We know these kinds of things. We know that OBGYN initial research was on the on, on black women's bodies without consent. Right. But the vaccine is working. So it's like, what are you going to do, folks? Are you going to quibble about the fact that this is this capitalist thing or are you going to take care of the people around you? I mean, it, it just comes down to it. that That's the decision. Um, but to get back to the basic point, yeah, we want to socialize big pharma, make it a utility. But the scientific data shows the vaccines are effective. So don't let this big pharma corporate conspiracy crap confuse you. The vaccines work. They do. Um, let's see, there was another question. Vicki Corden has an interesting question here. She asks, they ask, sorry, what do you think of mandatory community service right after high school? A good way for teenagers to do service and connections instead of military service. You know, I was anti-draft during Vietnam War. And one of the things I realized since then is that with a professional army where only about 1% of the American people are connected to the military in any way, it becomes a separate kind of Praetorian Guard. And that's a problem. And uh, Charles Rangel always used to talk about a public service requirement. And I've kind of come around to that. If the people are for it, I, it's not like something I want to push hard, but I think that would be, you know, sort of your contribution to society to get the many social benefits we want to provide. Military services, one option, civilian conservation corps, another, you know, other kinds of public service. Uh, I think that might be a good idea. A lot of countries do that. And uh, so I'm open to it. I mean, if we're going to, somebody just said it, Kat just said it. If we're going to do something like that, you better be paying a wage. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. But for me, my big concern is who determines what community service is? This is going, I'm I would be really concerned that this would funnel huge amount of en energy into partisan NGOs and things like that, right? We've got a whole not-for-profit complex, like that it's, and you know the the games that they they play of you know oh but we're we're nonpartisan like no you're not no I you actively support one party or the other and um, you know in the in-house public sector yeah yeah you don't want to set up boondoggles with private charities yeah and then you know so yeah my big concern is how do you how do you deploy this in a way that isn't weaponized for power by the people who are presently in power. Right. Um, 
how, who gets to decide what, um, and I would say, you know, I feel like colleges and universities have done pretty well with a lot of internships with like, cool. Yeah. It looks like that, that write your paper, but they're all about money. So they just want you to write the paper and, and check the box. But you know, we have a, in the Illinois Green Party, we have someone doing an internship with us right now through their college. Um, so they are engaged, able to engage in something actively partisan and actively progressive. So, um, you know, the, I, the idea in general is fine. Um, the deployment is my, my big worry and making sure that, you know, if we're going to take up people's times and require this, then they should be, they should be paid for their, their labor. Yeah. Chris, um, you have been uh, working on a survey of greens around the country and asking them about, you know, kind of what's going on in their local chapters. And we've got a few minutes left, I think, um, on today's discussion. Do you want to talk us through it? Yeah. Um, so if you can, you share it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, but yeah, so we put a... I, I put together a survey. Um, it is intentionally in depth. It's questions change based on what you say. Um, so, you know, the crux of the question, you know, the, the really core question that we want to know is, are you involved in your local Green Party? Um, and then from there, you know, if you are, then there's a whole bunch of questions. If you aren't, there's a bunch of questions. And then there's some extra questions like, how did COVID affect your organizing? What other parts of the party are you involved in and stuff? Um, you know, but so we've got, you know, we've got our initial stuff in. Um, it's confirming what I already kind of knew, and that is that most self-identified Greens are not involved in a local party. Yeah. Um, and so it's really, really essential, you know, to build the kind of thing we're trying to build, we've got to start building locally. Um, so, you know, and part of if you say no, you are not, you, you'll get asked things like, uh, what kind of resources do you need to help you start organizing locally? Um, so, you know, we... I, there's been some really good information. Um, you know, there's been some, uh, one thing that one question or one response that um, pops to mind is, uh, so, and I think it's pretty universal across, across green parties, is someone said that they were having a lot of trouble figuring out how to connect the things that they do into buildings like a, a larger organization like how to how to use the things that they are doing to lead to growth because um, it seems like they feel like they're just kind of doing things and it's not producing you know growth even if they get more people um, so you know they, they've that person has crossed that first threshold their locals having having you know events and doing things um, but they need that next organizing they need some help with that next organizing step um, which is both kind of a philosophical question of, you know, the best strategies and then also a, you know, a, a strategic and a, a, a physical real world of how to actually achieve them. Um, so, you know, that, I think that would, that, I think it's going to be something that rings true through the responses. Um, and this, you know, this survey will really help us in the green source socialist organizing project to say, you know, what do people need to start doing what we say we need to do, which is organize on a local level real hard. Um, so, yeah, so you'll see at the bottom of the green bar there in the bottom of the screen, greensocialist.net. 
you know, I did post in the in the chat uh, the link to the survey that Chris put up. You know, we are taking this information into the Green Socialist Organizing Project because one of the main reasons why we're here is because we want to build up the Green Party, right? And Chris um, works in in, in the um, uh, education section of of GSOC. And so all of this kind of stuff is, is important. You know, we've already started putting out a couple of videos on how to build a local and that sort of thing. Um, but this, this will help us really fine tune and address what you really need. So check out greensocialist.net. Check out the link that I'm going to post this link again in the chat. Um, and it's on our social media and everything. Right, right. So, you know, kind of participate, keep an eye out, out for those, uh, pro the programming that we're going to put forth, that sort of thing. But we are, oh, I think, how I do want to also want to say a week from tomorrow on September 5th, uh, we're going to be doing on Sunday, September 5th, we're going to be doing the first workshop uh, in a series of workshops on how to run a reading or discussion group. Um, so, you know, it, there's the goal of that will be to kind of give you an overview of how to run a reading group at your local level. Um, it's going to be a live stream. We'll take some questions and stuff, but then after that, we'll have a follow-up as well um, where it's going to be a Zoom and people will actually do a sample where we act, we run a little bit of a meeting and then we'll, um, uh, you know, give, you'll, you'll have more time for one-on-one -on -one discussion with some people who've actually done it. So do that's wanna, the latest thing. Do you want to put a link in the, and then I can, I can post it while, while Howie wraps up so people can check that out? Let me find, I've got a graphic. In the meantime, Howie, what are your thoughts? Well, I think I need to reintroduce you. I saw somebody in the chat saying, who are these other people? So that's Andrea Merida, who was my campaign manager in 2020, and Chris Blankenhorn, who did all the social media and a lot of the technical stuff that I can't do. So they were crucial to my campaign and coming back from this infection, I thought I needed a little help tonight uh, or this afternoon, but uh, this has energized me. So uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah, my last two thoughts are just reiterate what Chris has been saying. We got to build a grassroots base. You got to build a local. If you don't have one, we're developing materials to help you organize one. If you're having trouble with yours, same thing. We're going to help you with that. Uh, and if you're doing good, just keep doing it because if we're going to have national impact, we got to have a grassroots base. We're not going to buy billions of dollars of advertising to persuade public opinion to vote for us. And like in that revolution versus reform discussion, we got to have the people with us because when we start to make real change, the power structure is going to resist with its own extra parliamentary powers, you know, extra governmental powers, like their ability to invest or not. And the other thing I'd say, going back to the vaccines, uh, you know, if this country wanted to make friends around the world, it would expropriate the production facilities and expand them to produce these vaccines. When uh, Biden announced in the spring that he was going to give away a half billion vaccines, the same week the World Health Organization said the world needs 13 billion. 13 billion. I mean, this country's got a lot of wealth, and instead of this military, you know, nonsense, that's where that money should go. Because 
Don't even think of it as charity, as self-interest, because these variants develop where there's a population vulnerable. And as they adapt and mutate, they can become impervious to the vaccines we've got, or the vaccines are less effective against them. And then we get, then it comes back to bite us in the butt. So that's another thing that uh, haven't seen much talk about. I remember the World Health Organization said we need 13 billion vaccines earlier this year, and they're not being produced. Something like 2% of Africans have got a vaccine. Uh, India just got clobbered. We don't know how many people were killed. And now we got, particularly in the South, in the uh, lower uh, plain states, we got a, you know, a, a epidemic or a pandemic. Infections going up, particularly among young people. They've overwhelmed the ICUs. I mean, we're in a crisis. 2,000 people died yesterday from COVID. I mean, it was a tragedy, and my condolences to those Marines and, and the others that lost their lives in Afghanistan. But we lost 2,000 people that was unnecessary because of this anti-vaccine nonsense. So I guess that's my last thought. You know, we should start demanding that the U.S. produce these vaccines and get them out there. You know, Harris was out in Vietnam, said, I'm bringing, I forget what she said, 100 million vaccines. And the Chinese said, 200 million vaccines. Yeah, that's the kind of competition we need. Let's have a vaccine race instead of an arms race. Bye, everyone. Love.